Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's the season finale of Big Little Lies on Sunday, so make sure to check out our final episode of our live after show with the Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes. You can tune in on Twitter to Big Little Live right after the episode ends. Also, this week's 2019 Open Championship marks the final major championship of the golf season. So check out Fairway Roland, where Joe House is joined by a cast of Ringer and Golf World personalities for everything you need to know heading into the weekend. You can find new episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. How's everybody doing? Dog days of summer. Man, it's hot. Hot everywhere. Thanks for tuning in, listening in, all that stuff. Really a fun conversation today with uh, Jessica Young. Used to be over at CNN. Now she's uh, kind of running her own kind of rogue <laughs> news, which is kind of interesting. And uh, she has a novel out called Savage News, which is very entertaining. It's kind of a satire on her time as as a correspondent and that type of stuff. Um, wrapped up in a nice little uh, nice little story there. There's a um, it's a very entertaining book. So should be in, and we'll just cover you know. This crazy world owed journalism. So it's a fun conversation um, talking with her. So, guys, this is a big week for me. It's a very big week. And I've mentioned this before, hoping to hopefully have somebody in to speak more directly about it. But this is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Now, for those of you that know me, you know I'm a space space nerd. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. This is true. I had all those... Uh, <laughs> Toy rockets and everything. I, I realized my eyesight was too horrible to actually be an astronaut. I couldn't imagine, like, wearing glasses and the helmet, you know, unless they make that visor like your glasses, which is kind of weird, you know. But I was just blind as a bat when I was a kid, so I think I threw that dream out pretty quick, you know. Plus, they were not putting brothers in space, believe me, at that time. Um, brothers were barely allowed to help us get into space during those times, you know. Um, so... Um, you know, I was so excited. Um, I remember even watching it as a kid that um, just my heart just racing outside of my body. It felt like, you know, um, the fact that that was happening. You know, it's still so amazing to me right now. I still feel it's the most amazing thing of the 20th century in terms of achievement. I mean, that's a fun argument, by the way, if you have different things that you think is the most amazing achievement. Get to the fucking moon is pretty amazing. I mean, it's so amazing that people still don't think that we did it. Like, the atom bomb was pretty amazing. Coming up with a way to split the atom, I mean, think about it. A hundred years before that, people, you know, their I, I don't even know if they knew what an actual germ was, you know. <laughs> but uh, And a hundred years later, we're splitting fucking atoms. That's pretty amazing. But I've never met anybody that feels that the atom bomb didn't happen. You know, I've never heard anybody say, oh, we didn't bomb Japan. Oh, we never exploded nuclear weapons. People believe that that actually happened. And think about how amazing that achievement was, you know, nuclear fission. It's an amazing achievement. And yet, there are some people that don't believe we went to the moon. I'm like, what the fuck, you guys? It, it's amazing to me. You know who I should have, Kyle Brandy? Here's who I should have. I should actually have a moon conspiracist. That's who I should have. I've been wanting to get somebody on to talk about Apollo 11, but now I think I should have the opposite. I should debate somebody who doesn't think we went to the moon. That's what I think I should do, because it's the most ridiculous thing. Because as I like to say, 
by the way, they're a researcher. I'm a witness. I fucking watched it. I was not tricked at the time. I know what trickeration is. That's a Don King word, by the way, trickeration. And the arguments about it are so ridiculous, you guys. Like, it's, you know what it is? Part of it is recency bias. You know, people, people believe that the time they live in is the best times for everything, you know, and that people were so dumb before they arrived at this moment. How could anyone even know how to open a door, for Christ's sakes? People just didn't have that technology. You know, and you have to remind them that people are pretty fucking smart for a long time, you know. Socrates figured out a lot of shit 2,000 years ago. That still applies today. You know, Jesus said a lot of important things 2,000 years ago that people still use today in their everyday lives, you know. So people have been smart for a long time, you know. But they always say, you know, we really didn't have the technology. I think it was faked. Well, here's the irony. Like, we absolutely had the means to go to the moon back then. Of course, we didn't have modern technology, but we had the means to go to the moon. What we ironically didn't have was the means to authentically fake it. That's what we actually didn't have. And the irony is today is we actually don't have the means to go to the moon today, but we have an amazing technological ability to fake it. That's the irony of our times, you know. Back then, we didn't have the ability to fake it, but we had the ability to go to the moon. Today, we don't have the ability to go to the moon, but we have the ability to fake it. How is that for upside down? You know, we should really be on... Not even Mars. We should be on the sun right now. I know it's impossible, but you know what I mean. I mean, in terms of where we're going, you know, and I love when people say things like, <laughs> this is so funny, Larry's getting salty about Apollo 11. I love when people say things like, uh, well, if it was real, how come we didn't go back? Motherfucker, we went five or six times. It's, have you ever heard of Apollo 17? It wasn't just Apollo 11. In fact, one of them didn't even make it, Apollo 13, but we still circled the moon and came back. What do you mean, why didn't we go back? We went back five times, six times, whatever it was. Ah, it just gets me mad. But anyhow, I love things like this. I love our ability to go outside of ourselves and do things like this. You know, I think it's great for societies. I really do. And I know that a lot of people disagree with that. And by the way, a lot of important people, even back in the day when the Apollo program was being developed and First was the Gemini program, and before that it was Mercury. And when uh, Kennedy, President Kennedy, gave the challenge of putting a man on the moon, I want to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade and do the other things. We never knew what the other things were, by the way. And the fact that we did that, to me, I like that we do that as a group, together, as a society, and the fruit that it brings. Now, as I was saying, a lot of people disagree with that in the time— even people like Martin Luther King, who spoke out, I think, right before the Apollo 11 launch. Well, not before the Apollo 11 launch, because he had passed away, but before um, the first Apollo launch, is what I was going to say, which was, I think, in 1967, before um, the tragic accident for Apollo 1. But before that, uh, before the Apollo program, I think it was in 66 or 67, that King even made a statement that, um, how come we aren't trying to solve things on Earth? You know, there's a lot of poor people that need this, that, and that. And he's not wrong, you know. And people aren't wrong in saying that we need to do those things. I just think it's a false equation that we can't explore and do these types of things, that it's a zero-sum game, that this other thing has to be solved before we do this thing. Because that argument is used in a lot of things that I think are not relevant. 
So I think we can do both things. I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And ironically, a lot of the things that came out of the space program, a lot of the technology, a lot of the people that worked in it went on to do things in society that have actually helped people rise out of poverty and to help improve our lives and to help to improve things like medical technology and all those types of things. So the act of going to the moon, as ridiculous as it may have seemed at the time to a lot of people, I believe that the fruits of it has actually helped our society in countless ways. You know, there's people who can talk about that more eloquently than I can. But I think it is worthwhile. It's more than just learning about moon rocks and that type of thing. Anyhow, that's my little speech about the moon. But I am going to talk more about this because, you know, it's a big deal of mine. But I think I think the way to go is to have a moon conspiracy theorist because that would be the most fun. <laughs> that would be the most fun. <laughs> Maybe we get a panel of people. All right. So I did mention to you guys that. Don't get too concerned about things that really aren't racist. They just seem racist. I will tell you when something is really racist. Okay. Now's the time to tell you. President Trump just told a few members of Congress, the squad as they're called, uh, the four congresswomen, the freshman congresswomen who are making Trump so uncomfortable (laughs) because they're women of color and they speak their mind. Told them to go back where they came from or go back to what country. And... Congress actually just passed a resolution calling it racist, and people are debating whether he's racist or not, whether newspapers should call him racist and all these things. And, guys, this is very simple. And the president even came out defending himself, saying he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. How could people say this? And you know what I'll do? I'll take the president at his word. How about that? I will agree with him that he probably doesn't have a racist bone in his body. Because think about it. If you've got, like, a racist, like, tibia, or you got, like, racist ribs. That's pretty fucking racist. That's really racist when it's in your bones, right? And there have been people who have some really fucking racist bones. You know, that skeleton is in their grave, and it's still some racist fucking skeletons going on. Right, so if you're racist in your bones, I agree with the president. That's really racist. And I've always said I believe the president is more of a casual racist, you know. So let's not focus on the bones. Let's, how about we focus on some of your vital organs, like the heart and the brain. How about that, Mr. President? Let's start with the heart. Is the president racist in his heart? I would say it's a difficult question because I would say there's very little room in that heart because it's so tiny. <laughs> like the blood can barely get through. And it's the and the blood's got to get through there to get all the work done for all that McDonald's and KFC he's eating, right? So the blood's got a tough job. So there's not a lot of room in the president's heart, I believe. But I think, yeah, there's some there's room for some racism in there. In terms of his brain, I think there's a lot more room in his brain. The brain has a – there's a lot of emptiness in that brain. So there's a ton more room in there for racism. And I think the racism, it kind of like bounces around in there. But I don't know how firm it is, you know. I would say where the racism exists the most in the president, in my mind, definitely is just in his DNA. I think it's just part of who he is. And that's why he doesn't think that he's racist. You know, I think it's so ingrained in him to view people a certain way as less than and, you know, coming from shithole countries and these types of statements, Mexicans as rapists and viewing the world like that. That's a worldview that's ingrained in his DNA. That's a double helix situation is what we're talking about. That goes beyond his vital organs. That shit was passed down from his from his dinosaur ancestors. That's where that comes from. This is a DNA issue. I agree with him. This is not a bone issue. This is on the cellular level. 
That's where his racism comes from. That shit can't be changed. Enlightenment's not going to change it. Circumstances are not going to change it. Having a black friend's not going to change it. That's a, We're talking a DNA issue. So knowing that, we should not be so shocked when this shit happens, when he's asking for a Muslim ban, when he's doing these things. I don't know why people are so shocked about these things that, oh, my God, Trump said something racist. Really? You're really shocked about that? Stop being so shocked, you know? Now, I agree that they should be slapping him back and doing resolutions and like that. But I hate when the news, like, tries to sound so outraged and they can't believe it. Well, what the fuck have you been following for the past year and a half? Seriously, where were you during the Bertha thing? Why are you, why are you so shocked by this? I don't understand it. Call it out, but don't give me the fake outrage is what I'm talking about. Anyhow, yes, so you have my permission to call this racist is what I'm saying, I guess. That's it. That's all I want to do, guys, is just— it's just let you know when it's okay to call something out. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to focus our calls out of racism on Black on the Air. This is the service that Black on the Air provides. When do we call out racism? And when do we just say, eh, it was kind of racist-y, but it's not really racist, you know? It's in the racial category. So this is straight-up racism. All right. On that note, <laughs> uh Stay tuned. We got Jessica Yellen coming up. Really a fun conversation. And um, yay, Pablo Love. Welcome back. Very happy to have a, a fellow Californian, Southern Californian, kind of Angelinos. We're kind of Angelino-ish, I guess. Uh, Jessica uh, Yellen, the author of Savage News and ex-CNN uh, correspondent and all that good stuff that comes with uh, the news. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks, Larry. Great to be Thanks here. Thanks so much for coming. I appreciate it. I know you're real busy and all that stuff, but uh, congratulations on your book. Thank you. And it's been out for a, f- a few months now, I guess. It came right? out in April. Yeah, in yeah. April. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been fun. And you got some nice notices and... And uh, did the book tour. Yeah. It's um, an amazing experience, a book tour. Yeah, it is. It's something quite different, huh? It's not nothing I expected. This is your first book, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, what what's the most unexpected thing about a book tour? What, how does that put you in a different place for the things that you've done in your career? I was saying to a friend, it feels like being on the campaign trail minus the charter. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're <laughs> when you're covering a campaign, you're like flying to a new city every day. You're sure. always on the move, but there's always somebody telling you, "Here's what time you have to leave. Here's the flight." Yeah, and they're organizing everything behind the scenes for you. Uh-huh. None of that. You just got to do that part too. Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel like a celebrity when you're doing it? Does Does it put you in a different frame as opposed to the person on the story trying to find the story? Sure. Yeah, that's the real big difference. Yeah. Is that. When you're a journalist covering the news, the yeah. news is the star, right? It's right. all about the story. When you're an author of a novel, you have to let people in a little bit. Yeah. And that's the challenge. That's yeah. what's different. Yeah. And well, you feel vulnerable a little. Yeah. And <laughs> it's funny because I could imagine that a book like this would bring up a lot of vulnerabilities for you. Because, I mean, it's kind of one of those books. By the way, I love the fact that you wrote what I call a satire. Thank you. you. Know? I love that, you know, and there's so much funny. I'm still in the middle of reading, but there's so much funny stuff on every page. Okay, coming from yes. you, that makes me feel good. Thank yes, you. Yes, like I you think— You actually know funny. Yeah, I think of things like broadcast news and that kind of realm of where people who are taking a look at it from the inside, but yeah. there's a funny point of view on it and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. I, was, you know, knowing that you were on the inside makes me really happy you know, <laughs> when I'm reading it, you know, and to have your, your protagonist uh, who can't even get— 
People can't even get the name right. right. <laughs> savage or savage, I guess. Right? I actually ripped that off from my own experience because uh-huh. I'm Jessica Yellen, obviously. Right. But people would say, well, Jessica's an auspicious name for the news because of Jessica Savage. You're like, okay. If you think so, so bizarre, yeah. <laughs> I love how people have opinions about things that really don't matter once you become famous. You know? Right. They go, no, that's so unique. Why would you change that? Yeah. It's bizarre. And what made you want to write this book? So when I was in the mm-hmm. business, I mm-hmm. thought that there were certain things that were worth kind of pointing out uh-huh. um, and calling out. And it's a little bit—I say the book's about reporting while female. Uh-huh. So Very it's nice. some of the unique challenges you face as a woman in this business. Right. And also the challenges of our moment when you're trying mm-hmm. to, like, do in, work with integrity that's serious, but you're working in an atmosphere that's so circus-like. Right. And where no matter what— you're doing, you also have to focus on ratings and profit and numbers, right? Yeah. And that tension and how it impacts a person, right? A reporter is trying mm-hmm. to do a job. But I want to make that funny because sure. it's like a comedy of errors. Yeah. I don't, I, that was how I experienced, you know, the day. And um, I figured writing a novel was a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. Because, Rather than like a tell-all yeah. or whatever type of thing. Yeah. First of all, that gets mean. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I don't want to call people out. I wanted to comment on a system or a culture. And mm-hmm. and I also thought with a novel, you could pull in people who weren't already news obsessives mm-hmm. and get them engaged and paying attention to a little bit more how things work. Right. And you use the story of a mom's wedding to try to, you know, you personalize it in that way, you know. I'll tell you a story about that. Oh, yeah. Which I haven't told. Sure. Yeah. Which is um, mm-hmm. some of the early comments when you sent the, I sent the book around to readers uh-huh. were, um, she's very ambitious, the main <laughs> character. You have to make her likable. Really? Yeah. And one way to make her likable is surround her by people who love her. Okay. To show that other people will love the character makes her lovable. Right. And you're like, can't she just be lovable because she's like a good person and doing her job well and working hard? And right. No, no. So some of that is a little bit like how we perceive, you know, women who are ambitious at work. Yeah. That's really interesting. Were you, uh, when you started in news, did you start right after college? Did, did you know that that's where you wanted to go? You went to Harvard? Uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, I did not think I was going to be a journalist. Uh-huh. Did you have a path set out for you at that I point? I did. Yeah. I wanted to be a politician. Really? I did. You rarely hear that from people. You, in college, you said, I want to be a politician. I I didn't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, my dad wanted to be a politician, and I uh-huh. internalized a lot of his stuff and his ambitions. What kind of work did he do? He was, I called him a benevolent real estate developer. You're from L.A., so you'll appreciate this. Absolutely. It's the opposite of Donald Sterling, (laughs) is what you're saying. (laughs) He um, grew up going to something in downtown L.A. called Grand Central Market, which was this food hall in downtown L.A. When he was young, it was this vibrant happening place. And then it fell on hard times, and it was sort of on the verge of being condemned. And he put together a group of people to buy it and rescue it Mm -hmm. and revitalize it. And it's now— you know, 40 years later, becomes sort of the center of the renovation of downtown L.A., which gave this city. His belief was it was one of the few spaces in Los Angeles where you saw people of all races, classes, parts of the city mixing because mm. we're so atomized in this city, so distant. Yeah. And that it was one of these communal spaces we should save. And so he set out to save it. Um, and he did that really early. It was, mm-hmm. But now people who come to L.A., it's like one of the top you know, five destinations in Absolutely, LA. Absolutely, yeah. And it is one of the most small D democratic spaces in the city, I think. Yeah. So he had a lot of vision, a lot of urban yeah. vision, as they exactly. say. Where was your dad from? 
he grew up in outside Massachusetts, but moved East to Coast, L.A. Yeah. when he was 15. Oh, so very young. Yeah. Yeah. So you got that in your bones, mm-hmm. that California. What part of the city did you grow up in? I grew up first um, in the Hollywood Hills, mm-hmm. like in the Joan Didion, Hollywood Strangler era. <laughs> Joan Didion, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And mm-hmm. then um, moved to the Venice Beach area. Right. And then ended up in the Santa Monica Canyon mm-hmm. later. So always sort of urban hippies, my parents. That's interesting. You know, it's funny. I don't get to talk to too many pure Angelinos mm-hmm. like myself. We have a different relationship, I think, with the city than most people. People tend to regard it as just this weird place or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it is. But the people here are way more laid back than the people who come here. That's interesting. <laughs> you mean just like the way they approach life? I think so. I think there's something about being from California which gives you more of a calmness about, like, things than people that come here seeking something. Right. You know, there's a little more jumpiness, I think. And <laughs> well, I think it's wired into the East Coast. I, oh, completely. Completely. Like, New York is all about the hustle, and L.A. is all about the dream, you know. That's and, interesting. Yeah, and there's something about the dream that, well, it's associated with being asleep, for, first of I all. Know. But, well, this but is California a- feels expansive in that. I always feel like California feels like expansive in that if you dream something, you could probably do it. You can find a way. Like there's something in the soil that is that. And New York is all about you have to get in there and you have to hustle and you got to get over on this and you got to make this happen. And it's about, you know, this, that, and that. You know? yeah. Well, I always, I mean, sometimes I miss the East Coast because I always say you can get 12 things done in a day there. And That's in exactly LA, what I mean. You right? can get like two things done in a day here. <laughs> yes. But, but it feels like 12. <laughs> right. I mean, then you have to add in drive time. Yes. That's part of it. Which is one of the things, uh, by the way. Right. Right. <laughs> so maybe one and a half. Right. On the other hand, I would always say like in the East Coast, you'd pitch some new idea and the first response is no. Yes. And then you have to back them into thinking about why it could be an option. Right. In, in California, California, the first response is yes. And there's like that openness, that why not try, right? Yeah. The frontier, create what you want to become. Exactly, right. Then you realize you have to take five meetings and it's going to be like, <laughs> yes. you know, a, two agents right. and maybe not. <laughs> yeah, like California, I love that we're getting into this discussion. California, you're, you're kind of creating your identity out of, you know, what's there. And in East Coast, you're becoming part of an identity that's been established already. That's interesting, yeah. You know, yeah, because it's such there's such a history there and everything. And one of the, you know, complaints about California is there's not a lot of history compared to the East Coast. There is history, but it's just not the same. Yeah. You know. No, it's not as, I mean, it wasn't the founding of the democracy, right? No, not at all. But it was, you know. We had the gold rush. We had, we had a lot out here. <laughs> we had a lot of earthquakes, you know. We just had some. Yeah, so you wanted to be a politician, and did you see yourself as starting, like, small? You wanted to be, like, the way your dad did, operate on a local level and be that type of politician, or did you have grander ambitions? I guess I thought I'd sort of do policy, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I don't exactly know that I had the most clear vision, but I, I my first job out of college was an intern in the Clinton White House. Oh, okay. So, you know, I went straight from— There's so many comments I on know. that. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know Monica. I, I, I kept myself uh, restrained on that. <laughs> uh, did not know her, but I was uh-huh. there just before that— when she was. Wow. And wow. Um, that could have been, you know. <laughs> that would have been its own Maybe book. that's your next book. I mean, I'm just saying. Savage White House after <laughs> Savage News. <laughs> uh, I always found that, you know, it was, I, I was there at the time they did the crime bill and did welfare reform. It was 94? I was, was there that? late 93, 94, 93. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I always noticed that there were two things that could stop the room cold. 
I worked in the West Wing as a desk oh, assistant. Uh-huh. One was the president walking into the room. Uh-huh. And the other was that one TV that was on in every single office in the White House, which was tuned to CNN because it was wow. the only cable news channel around then. Yeah. And they would be covering – whenever they covered the White House, people would stop, look up, and watch. Uh-huh. And I thought those people have so much influence. They have so much ability to shape what's happening in this building. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do that and I want to do it differently. And I want to be able to talk about policy and I want to be able to explain what's really going on and talk about what matters. So, so I kind of set out to do that instead. So by being in the political world, you realize that's not what you actually wanted to do. You wanted to be the person looking at the political world and commenting on it. Yeah, I thought yeah. I don't want to work for these guys. I want to watch them. Yeah. Keep them accountable, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Was there anything uh, that really struck out? Uh, how much um, interaction did you have with the president himself, whether from like just being in the same room or that type of thing? Well, one of the things you discover in the West Wing is the building itself is physically tiny. Yeah. And, I've um, been there once before. Like yeah. the staircase from up to downstairs basically doesn't allow for two people walking at the same time. So you always have to sort of pause and slide sideways or yeah. so there was there were times you'd walk down the stairs and the president would come up and you'd yeah pop. you're in a laurel and hardy physical uh, comedy yes. bit all of a sudden <laughs> the whole space is very intimate and small mm-hmm. and so i'd come across him i wasn't advising him or briefing him right, or, right you right, know right. um but you do realize there's something about like this is a building for the people because i'd bring people in on tour and they'd expect something much more grand yeah, yeah. And you're like no this is you know about the people where you mm-hmm. represent you know, it's democracy. It's a different kind of building of leadership. And did you have a, an occasion to be there during the press briefings? And the, what is that room? Is it the press room? Is that what it's called? Yeah, the called? James S. Brady press briefing Yes, room. yes, yes. Which yeah. is an interesting room because the time I was there, is you go in and go, oh, this looks so— Tiny. Ordi-. Yeah, exactly. And I yeah. write about that. It was Well, I yeah. didn't actually spend much time there when I was an intern, but obviously I came back. I covered it mm-hmm. at ABC News when— um, President Bush was in office. And then right. again, obviously, when President Obama was in office, I was mm-hmm. um, the chief White House correspondent at CNN. And I, you know, the briefing room is so not what people expect. Yeah. In person, it's tiny. It's dirty. Sometimes it has it a smell dirty. of body odor. <laughs> Sometimes there are balled up newspapers on the floor. It's definitely not glamour central. It's a workspace. Yeah. There is something very non-glamorous about that job, but I always felt that was kind of a badge of honor about it, you know, about the job of reporter. Like, it's not really supposed to be glamorous, but it's become glamorous in different ways, it feels like. I think there's a perception gap. Mm -hmm. It's perceived as glamorous, in part because people look to you to, you know, with, like, your voice of authority, right? Mm -hmm. But the life of it is, you know, you're you're very much at the whim of the news cycle. Um, the physical experience of it can be challenging because, mm-hmm. you know, you're in this building all the time or you're on the road. When I'd cover a campaign, sometimes you'd fly to two different states in a day. Mm-hmm. One of the strange quirks of being in the White House press corps at that time was, you know, you do your – this is Jessica Yellen reporting for CNN in – Wait, you guys, where are we? <laughs> and they'd start, there was a whiteboard they put up in the press hold uh-huh. where they'd write where you are so that we could all look up and see where we are. Because sometimes you'd, with you the president, fly from city to city to city. Yeah. And you're like, wait, are we in Mississippi now or Oklahoma? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. I was in Mongolia. You know, like, how do you say Ulaanbaatar or Mongolia? That's pretty <laughs> I, good. I practice a lot. <laughs> And uh, what, what were those early days like? Because um, you mentioned about having the identity as being a female reporter in yeah. this traditional man's world for so many years and women 
you know, over the past 30 years have really made such big inroads, but it's always been a transition at the same time, too. Were you keenly aware of that at the time? Yes. Uh-huh. yes. I mean, one of the things I write about is the main character, Natalie Savage. She goes to her first press briefing and gets a call from the boss that she has to go talk to the boss. Right. And she mm-hmm. thinks she's going to be called on the carpet for the question she asked at the briefing. And instead, the boss is angry about how her hair looked on yeah. <laughs> That's a true story. Um, so I was endlessly, you know, called in to talk about my hair. And um, you know, your because- bosses would call you in and discuss your hair. Yes. That's amazing to me. But that will be like every reporter listening to this, every TV woman knows, like, uh huh. Yeah, yes. They're like, oh, for me, uh huh. <laughs> of course, right. Like 100%. Um, and you just learn that your appearance. It's, it's kind of like if I don't make the appearance rock solid, I'm going to get torn apart for it and no one's going to pay attention to my reporting. So I better just do all the things that are required to conform. And then you become part of that mindset and mm-hmm. then you you construct this exterior that looks like this, you know, female professional. Mm-hmm. Like the TV news reporter female is sort of like the idealized version of a female professional in our culture. Yeah. Only now with it's like – It's a type. It's a type. Of, yeah. I, I saw an interview that you did where you said uh, they said your hair was one-eighth of an inch too long or something like that. Uh, longer on one side than on the other. Longer on one side yeah. than on the other. Like, how do you respond to something like that? I was star- – I didn't know. They told me to go watch the tape and let them know if my haircut was uneven or if I was tilting my head. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm like, can we talk about the work? Uh, I think, you know, it's better today, but I don't think it's uh-huh. mm, all different. And how do you get past that type of thing? Uh, my, what I In your learned. Work. Mm-hmm. What I learned is to just like do the thing, mm-hmm. like know how to make your hair look great, know how to like wear the right things, and then you can focus on the work, mm-hmm. and then you don't have to talk about that. Right. And different environments are better and worse about it. So you know, once you get to a certain level and you figured it out, you can just like move past that mostly. Yeah. But it happens a lot to younger women, especially. Yeah, a friend of mine um, was a reporter in local news. Um, she was in a couple of cities and. You know, I was, you know, I'm so interested in what the lifestyle is, you know, and it really hit me when she said how hard it is for her, especially in the morning, because she has to get ready in a different way than a man does. Oh, my God. Before she even gets there or even in the car on the way, you know, and plus she was doing stuff where she would have to set up her own shots and all that kind of stuff, too, like doing all of that. You know, I did that, that at level. the beginning. I was yeah. a one man band reporter. We Explain to that well. to people, because a lot of people don't know what that means. You so. Know? When I moved to Orlando for Mm -hmm. my first on-air reporting job, um, it was one-man band, which means you carry your own camera, you shoot your own video, you edit your own tape, you do it all. That's right. So I would get to the bureau or the office, and they'd say the assignment. Mm -hmm. You get an address. I started in the days before GPS. I have a terrible sense of direction. So I'd have (laughs) And you're from L.A. (laughs) I've never lived in Orlando. So give me a map. I would budget an extra one hour to get lost. Mm And you drive to the location, you figure out your story, you figure out your own interviews, like nose to snap, what do they call it, top to tail. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd be back at this, you know, bureau at 4 p.m. with a story. And you shoot your own stand-up, which is the reporter part. So you hit record, you lock the camera down, hit record, run in front of the camera, do your stand-up, go back, rewind, look in the viewfinder, see if it worked, do it again and again and again. like, there's a lot of comedy outtakes from that. Yes, I could only imagine. And would you also have to do, if you're talking to people, do both sides of those talk yourself? Or is it just like straight on interviewing? Oh, types? you would do the interview, yeah, right. uh, focus on them, and then you 
reset the camera focused on you for reversal shots. Yeah. Where you'd nod where not, and mm. look like you're – which P.S. <laughs> is how everybody – like all of that is done anyway. Yeah, right, right, right. Sometimes you have a one cameraman do that after the fact. Even. Sure, yeah. Yeah. It, it's so fascinating. I mean, that kind of lifestyle, it's just, it's funny how it's gone under the radar for so long that people don't have an yeah. awareness of that. Yeah. yeah, because you don't show that part. We don't no. see the behind the scenes. I'll tell you one thing. First, it was two things. It was one of the best reporting experiences of my life because uh-huh. it was brand new and so exciting. And I loved being able, like the freedom of it. And two, I now do this crazy thing where I report the news on Instagram. And I set up the camera, record myself, do all all the work, top to tail. And I think I'm able to do it because I had that experience in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And I know that I can— You know what you're doing, yeah. And also, I'm not dependent on another other team mm-hmm. to execute. I think it gives you that kind of sense, like, I know how to execute on the story. And when you got at CNN, um, what was your first role there? Were you at the White House when you first got there? My was first job—I'll tell you a fun story about that. My mm-hmm. first job was Capitol Hill correspondent. Okay. And I covered the Hill with Dana Bash. The two of us were on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got there in, I think it was August of 2007. Okay, right before Obama. Uh-huh, and they uh-huh. said to me, listen, we want to give you a taste of the presidential campaign and let you go to Iowa, but you're new here. So we're going to give the serious candidates to our long-term reporters. And since you're new, we're going to give you someone who's not going to be on the campaign trail that long, this mm-hmm. young senator named Barack Obama. Uh, <laughs> no. He might be Muslim. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't even— like a presumption. It was just at that point sure. in time, remember, everybody thought uh, Hillary was I the candidate. Know. Remember? Yeah. It was in, supposed to be Hillary and um, what's his name? Uh, Giuliani. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Remember that? People forget about that, too. But it's such mm. a good reminder how you, you can't make judgments this Mm-mm. early in the game. Like, it's Mm-mm. too early to know. Yeah. I think at that time, McCain was, like, flying southwest. Right. <laughs> was like, he was using his points, I think, to, yeah. to fly around. He was almost completely out of it. Yeah, yeah, he was sort of down and out. And Romney was sort of promising and interesting, but yeah. it was Giuliani's to win. And then he sort of skipped to Iowa and focused. I don't know. It's yeah. crazy. So what was that life like? What, what were you tasked to do? Then Were you shadowing him? or We would. We I remember we got to um, Iowa. I guess it was late November, early December 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, we would do first talking about like waking up early and the challenges, wake up at like 4 Mm a.m. or you'd be live early then, put on all your makeup, blow your hair dry yourself, right? Go outside and it's a blizzard. You have to stand in the snow without looking wet. Like that was always the challenge. It's on you to not look wet, but we need you outside live. And, um, And start just like talking knowledgeably about everything that's going on while doing live shot after live shot after live shot. And then- you do that in the morning, and then you take a break from being on camera, and you start going to the events. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to an Obama event uh, where there was this. I, I would call back to home base and say, "There's something happening here, people. Like, there's an in energy. Iowa? Yeah, mm-hmm. there's an energy around Obama." People would say, "You know, you're new. That's how Iowans are. They get excited about politics." And I remember this one day, a um, a guy came in, a grandpa. Like, you know, he looked like Santa Claus, basically, in the overalls. Mm-hmm. And he was grousing that um, his grandkids were making him come see the celebrity, Barack Obama. And I kept the camera trained on him during the event. Wow. And as the event perce- like went on and on and on, by the end, the grandpa is doing the wave. And uh, I found him at the end, and he's like, I'm volunteering, I'm community organizing, I'm in. You kind of, by being on the ground that way, you get a sense of what's happening, uh-huh. of voters connecting with a candidate, and you see, you can really see a campaign start to build. Right. 
And for you personally, did that experience uh, kind of clarify for you, like, um, the type of things you needed to, to do as a reporter and be as a reporter for for, for where you had started? You know? Well, for me, it, it was uh-huh. it was so important to see what, I hate saying this, but, like, regular people actually sure. want to hear and mm-hmm. As know. opposed to being in that bubble. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Or being in the studio in D.C. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're in the studio in D.C., you get into pundit mode and you're just, right. like, endless opinions and you're covering, like, the rhetoric on the Hill and the back and forth. And when you get out and you talk to voters and mm-hmm. regular people, what they would say to me is not, you know, why is the, you know, White House saying this or that. They'd say, like, does Iran have a bomb or not? Or, you know— oh. What did this like? What does the wiretapping really mean? Like they're asking much more foundational questions mm-hmm. about the impact of the stories in the news on their lives, and asking you to tell them what matters and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things we're losing right now, especially, is that we're covering everything with equal importance. Like yeah. everything's a mountain, nothing's a molehill, mm-hmm. and we're losing that connection to like here's what really matters. Here's kind of noise. Um, and the stuff that matters, let's go back to that and tell you what it really means and how it impacts you. Yeah, you make a joke about breaking news, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which was one of my observations as well, where everything is breaking news now, like at your old place, you know. Yeah. In the book, there's a scene where the breaking news yes. banner goes down right, in the right, DC right. bureau and everyone starts freaking out because <laughs> yes, they're live right. on air without the words breaking news. What are they right, right, do? right, right. Which is so ridiculous. So, of course, that had to come from <laughs> your observation, <laughs> well, I'm sure. Part of the, this same observation of giving so much importance to everything can't be breaking news right. or have that kind of importance. Why do you think there's that insistence now that that is it just to get our eyeballs to watch? Oh, yeah. it's breaking. You yeah. know? I mean, because it's all about tune in time. And because it doesn't long- say important news. It just no. says breaking that it's new. Oh, it's new. OK, it's breaking. But that's that's a really important observation, Mm -hmm. and it's exactly how the business is structured right now, at Mm -hmm. least in cable, which is we need to catch your eyeball. We need you as you're flipping channels to stop here. Mm -hmm. Or if you're, like, walking away, look up. It'll make you look up and stay. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really about engineering your brain. It's like clickbait. Right. And it does help. It makes everything the same. So you mm-hmm. can't know when something really matters. I think it really – it has the potential danger of giving us sort of outrage fatigue mm-hmm. so that everything's at such a decibel 10 at all times. Yeah. You can't maintain that forever. And so people start going numb or tuning out. Yeah. And that could be the danger. It's one of my unfortunate observations about um, – I guess cable news in general. But CNN has fallen to a lot of that, especially in their primetime shows, you know. Where it's they feel the need to be outraged about stuff and have people on who are outraged, and then they ask them about the outrage, and right. then they discuss the same outrage, and then they bring somebody else, one person who disagrees with the outrage, and they're outraged that he disagrees with the outrage. Right. Yeah. It's a Fox News model too. I mean, exactly. Well, and- Fox started that whole thing, except they never had the person who disagreed with the outrage. <laughs> <laughs> Every so often, they'd have that one lone voice on. Yes, it's like, exactly. But, but it was Alan Combs, and look what it did to him. Right. Yeah. So I think- rest in peace, Alan. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so I mean it's a business model I think yes. and I also think it's a function though of living and working in DC and around that all day every day mm-hmm. because it does become hard. You do think at some point we must be outraged about this because it's so not in line with our traditions or our values sure. at least. Um but I really have this theory on the news which is we need to find a way to start doing it differently mm-hmm. because the audience 
people, it's not like a, your job. You have a, you're funny, you do 17 projects, you do other things. Mm-hmm. It's not your job to know what's the most important story today. It's our job to tell you that. Mm-hmm. And when we keep throwing all this at you or like make you drink from a fire hose, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And it'll force people to start tuning out. And so I really think there's an obligation for the news writ large, not individual journalists necessarily, but writ large, to stop with the, you know, always screaming the outrage. Right. And find another way to reach a part of the audience that needs just like calm, clear news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here's what matters, here's what doesn't. I call it, that's why I call it news, not noise. Like, I tell you, here's what's happening in the conversation. This part's noise. Mm -hmm. You can pay attention, but it's kind of like Us Magazine. Yeah. It's just like brain candy. Over here is the news that really matters. Yeah. I mean, O'Reilly tried to brand his version of that with the no spin zone like years ago, I think was his attempt at that type of thing from a different perspective, you know. Um, How do you cover a president like Donald Trump? I mean, I know it seems like it's such a straightforward question, but it's, but it's, it's the riddle of the Sphinx, you know, because I had uh, Jeffrey Tubin on, who was, this was maybe a year and a half ago. He was almost apologetic at he felt the way his network covered Trump. But I almost was like, I don't know what we were supposed to do. I mean, it's in the beginning, he, it was like a car wreck. What are you supposed to do? Ignore the car wreck? You I know, know, it's in a damned if you do, damned if you totally. don't kind of position, you know. So I think it's a terrible double bind. Mm-hmm. You know, even this week is a perfect case in point. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, how do you not cover the president's tweets mm-hmm. and— They're official statements, aren't they? Right? Yeah. And, and Congress's decision, mm-hmm. you know, to hold that vote. And, and one has to cover it. I mean, mm-hmm. this is so unbecoming of a leader, unusual from a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the debate about whether the news should explicitly call the tweets racist or right. call out the fact what's that it's being called job? racist. Like, yes. what's the job? And yet, at the same time, like, you have to cover that. At the same time— mm-hmm. All the coverage it's getting, it's sucking the oxygen out of the room, and there are other things that are happening that matter. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, like, a vote on the budget and the debt limit is coming and stuff going on with Iran and North Korea and Mm -hmm. your health care. And these are things that really, really matter and have impact. And so I think it's a question of proportion. It's a question of tone, some Mm -hmm. of its tone. Um, Not letting that story eat all the coverage. Um, and then remembering when to stop. Yeah. I'm kind of torn on this because I'm not as hungry as some people are for, like, the New York Times to call the president racist, you know, or those types of indictments that have to come from the news media. I'm like, what happened to us making up our own minds? Like, I'm fine with them telling me what he said, and I can make up my own mind about that, you know. Yeah, and a lot of this goes to mm. should he be called a liar or should his statements be called false right. and untrue? And it's a question of intent. Can you know the intent? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the establishment media at this point has decided to go with these are lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the establishment media has. I do think that it runs the risk of alienating that part of the audience that could be on-ramped to learning mm-hmm. but is turned off by what feels sort of opinionated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really big on this whole idea of there's a part of the audience that wants to, information and wants to engage, but mm-hmm. is so turned off by the way we're doing things that yeah. they don't. And how do you re-engineer it to on-ramp them? Mm-hmm. I think it's partly explaining your jargon and partly maybe not using those terms. 
lies, racist, saying that there, he's being called out for lies. This is untrue. Mm-hmm. But maybe you don't have to assert that yourself. I, I'm in the, I know a lot of people yell at me for saying that. No, I know what you mean. Well, it's like what you said earlier about clickbait, you know, and the need to get ratings and to get the eyeballs is such a big need. Bottom line, at and is your parent company or whoever we're talking about, whether it's MSNBC or whatever, you know, that it feels like the job of journalism has changed a bit because of that environment that we're living in. A thousand percent. And, and the expectations. Well, I should just say this. I am doing the news on my own Instagram at Jessica Yellen. People mm-hmm. can follow me there. What I get from the audience that follows me is thank you for giving me the news without so much emotion. Thank you for wow. the lack of hysteria. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I couldn't watch the news with my kids because it scares me what they're telling them, but mm-hmm. I can watch this with my kids. It's a lot of women who feel like overwhelmed and turned off by that shrill, hysterical outrage all the time tone. And they're just shutting down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people are also undecided voters or sometimes voters. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you can find a way to reengage that audience, you also reengage participation. Do you think it's the job of journalists also when engaging with the president? To be, um, you know, the foe of the president, let's say, or like, how do you, how do you, it's, you, you do you know what I'm saying I here? Do. Like, how do you engage properly in that relationship without being antagonistic for antagonism's sake? You know, like you're expected to be the other side, as opposed to you really want to get an, an answer out of this person. I think first we should just say that the president sets it up that way. Mm -hmm. Like he has structured this as a, you know, world wrestling competition and he needs an opponent at all times. And when he's not running against a candidate, he's running against the media. Mm -hmm. So he's made the media the foe. And so the whole way the White House functions in relation to the media is to create that dynamic, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it incredibly hard to not fall into that. Right. But um, I think there's. A couple ways. One is just a question of tone to just try to be very steady. I think with this president and this team, it's to always repeat the same question over and over because it's like on their third chance to reply. That's when you see that they're just they, – they do the thing they're doing mm-hmm. or they don't have an answer or they go the place you know they're headed. Um, and at some point, maybe it's to call it out. I thought that when Kellyanne Conway was on the um, driveway the other day mm-hmm. – and when she asked about the reporter's ethnicity. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't move off his position of saying that's not relevant to my question mm-hmm. was like stellar response. Like that is his job. I'm here as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Don't make this personal. Yeah, I I'm, agree. I'm bouncing this back to you. Answer the question. And sometimes one of the things you realize as a reporter is you can't get uh, a person, a subject to say the thing you know they're getting at, or you can't force the answer. Mm-hmm. You can just show the audience they are constantly asking the question and they're not replying. Yeah. Or help them reveal themselves by the way they're choosing to not answer. Mm-hmm. Do you feel um, it's also tough to be in the position of journalists when your other journalists are attacked even, you know, and it's kind of interesting to see sometimes journalists come to the to the defense of other journalists or they stay on the sidelines. Like, how do you even navigate those type of waters? Mm-hmm. I guess it's sort of particular to the situation, but I have seen that I think there's been a pretty good camaraderie in Uh the press corps. And I always experienced that when I was covering the White House, that there's Mm -hmm. a really good sense of camaraderie and like we're doing this together, like we're competitive, but the job, we have respect for one another in the job. Yeah. And so like we'll get each other's back. 
And I think to the most, you know, they're trying. I mean, I don't know what the solution is, right? Nobody has a clear answer. Mm -hmm. I should also say that while there's a lot going on that's upsetting in the media, we're also seeing exceptional journalism. Mm -hmm. And the work of individual reporters right now is like, it's so honorable and impressive. Yeah, that whole the whole Me Too movement was uh, fueled by so much amazing reporting by several reporters. Yes, yeah. and I mean the you know the Jeffrey Epstein yeah. case was the work of an investigative reporter. There's so many reporters who are just like doing the work right now, really impressively. Yeah, I feel like print is getting a kind of a a new wind to its totally. sails these days. Do you feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and they're getting subscriptions say, yeah. too. Yeah. Oh, I know. I have friends who want to, like, wear T-shirts that are, like, long with the Washington Post. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Democracy dies in dark. Right. Exactly. (laughs) New line of merch, guys. Yeah, exactly. Like the uh, Kamala Harris (laughs) T-shirt. So, and even when things like, uh, you know, to me, like, that whole phrase of fake news, (sighs) you know, when that hit, it became their battle cry at the White House and everything. You know, it was kind of dismissed at first and made fun of, made fun of a lot. But I wonder if it's had an effect on the public. Oh, you know, a thousand percent. I mean, like, the question mm-hmm. I get more than anything else when I do speeches or speak to groups is, who should we trust? I don't know who or what to trust. Yeah. What should we believe? How do we know if something's real? Or on Instagram, people DM me and they'll ask a question that's so, just like Google it. You know, just like, it's not hard to answer. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't trust the results that come up. I don't know if it's true or not. I want someone I think is credible to tell me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly, you know, this fake news. That's why this BS fake news thing has resonated because mm-hmm. people are already mistrustful. Part of it's the social media, right? All this stuff disseminated on social media from your Uncle Fred who's <laughs> sending you this thing and you're like, right. that doesn't seem real, but maybe. Um, part of it. I think we don't talk about this as much, is the collapse of the local newspaper. Yeah, definitely. It used to be that you, like, knew the publisher of the local newspaper, not well, but you'd see him in his car, so he was a person in your world. Yeah. And then you could trust, sort of, or have a framework for making sense of what's in that paper, and that would offer a filter. Mm-hmm. And that's largely gone. Yeah, a lot of bureaus are gone, too, you know, from news organizations where they would have journalists in different places. Kinda, totally. Yeah. Downsizing. Yeah. I mean, you have the upsizing of citizen journalism. But I so feel like good. but they're not professionals. You know? I, know. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's more democratic. You get video sooner. Like, there's an advantage. There are ways to make it work. Right. I but, be- yeah. Yeah. I think elitism is proper in some circles, I, you know. This is the the thing, reporting is on these events, to me— decries elitism. It decries people who have been trained to to filter this in a certain way and to and to tell us about that. I think we need that, you know. So the pushback I get to that when I raise that is journalism isn't a credentialed business. You don't go to school for it. You don't get a degree like a you can, but you don't get like a stamp of certification. You're not an MD. Mm-hmm. There's no bar exam. So what makes one person who's a journalist more legit than someone else, that they got hired by some mainstream news organization? Like, what is the thing that gives them their elite status? Now, Mm -hmm. I think it's just expertise. It's experience. It's like Mm -hmm. a stated commitment to be driven by facts and trying – you're openly committing to aim for objectivity or truthfulness. Right. Um, But that's not proof and people want proof. 
Yeah, but there is something to be said when you have fewer guardians that their discernment means something. It has a meaning to it. You know, when there's when there's no discernment, then you've lost that meaning. And, and whose words do you trust? It opens up the gate to things like, you know, news on Facebook and that type of thing where people don't know what to trust. Right? I a thousand percent agree. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with it because yeah. and I, I don't know what. I would like your opinion on it because people mm-hmm. say to me, like the golden era was the era of Walter Cronkite mm-hmm. have being the voice of America, right? Sure. The voice of authority. Mm-hmm. But if you look back to that era where it was like Huntley and Brinkley and Cronkite, mm-hmm. they were three upper middle class white men right. who lived on the East Coast. It was a specific version of authority. Yeah. And was that better? Well, better is a different word than was it good, <laughs> you know. Um, I I think it served us well during those times, you know. But better is different. I mean, I believe that, yeah, we have to evolve in that type of thing. I think having different people in charge of that is important. But the nature in which it's delivered is is the change that I'm concerned about, not who's doing it, you know. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is like— I think it's good that different people are the Cronkites and the and the Brinkleys and right. those people. But when the manner in which people are allowed to have that voice, whether it's just tweeting or this type of thing, without the filter, I don't think is necessarily a good thing. I think there's not enough of a distinction between expert analysis and comments. <laughs> well, that's you know? for sure. It's like it used to be people would just yell at their TV, you know, and maybe the neighbor heard it. But but now yelling at your TV, you know, gets retweeted around the world. And it's like, well, just because you're yelling doesn't mean it's valid. Just because, like I always say in an argument, if you raise your voice, that doesn't mean it's a better point because it's louder. That's true. That's Um, true. So it's the amplification to me of of the middle, which I don't necessarily think is true. Um, And maybe I am— old school in that sense, you know. I think what did make Cronkite and those people good is they did spend their time in the trenches and doing all that work. They were in the shadow of Morrow and all those people and came up through the ranks, you know, when it was time for a more diverse people to do that. Like, I love seeing the fact that um, uh, Nora O'Donnell's doing yeah, the Yeah, great? I think it's fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah, she's great, she's you know. Great. And I'm hoping she brings... Now, you know what's interesting? I'm getting more satisfaction out of that news now than I ever did before. Why is that? Because it's more neutral. It's it taking me back to a more neutral place, which I I admire more now than I did before. I think I kind of dismissed it like everyone else as I, I was hungry, you know, like everyone else for this other type of chatter news, you know. Well, on that, I think that— it's- And now things are being presented to me more. I get more of a flavor of things. And I always felt it was my responsibility to, to learn more about things. But I know that's that's a different thing, too, you know. I think CBS as an organization has always been much more like sort of steady and calm yeah. in their presentation. Sure, absolutely. And we're seeing that right now from them like they're doing it at their height, right? Yes. And that's There's really – stability mm-hmm. in in presentation. Yeah, right. And I do think that there's more of a craving for that because, you know, in a in a, rewind a few years, we lived in sort of a more placid time, it seemed. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you needed more stimulation to pay attention to the news. Right. But now it's like we're already triggered. <laughs> You're walking around always triggered. We're it's like, just like one more thing. I can't. opioid out uh-huh. on the news right now. I can't, yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I, can't I can't take it anymore. Right? No more news. So <laughs> – but I kind of wonder if the real answer is we need more like established voices of authority – or it's also part of, like, the new delivery mechanisms. Like, mm-hmm. is it on these platforms where we're getting all the shouting and all the outrage right. to well, do things differently? Well, it, maybe it's that someone decided, and it was Ted Turner a while ago, that we need 
to be informed 24 hours a day. <laughs> Maybe we yes, don't. Yes, and I don't think that we necessarily do. Turn you know? it down. Yes, like someone just decided that, and we said, um, okay, let's give that a shot. And right. now it's like, why are you not yeah. informing us 24 hours a day? We're it's junkies. Like, yes, it's like, who said we needed that? You know, it's kind of an interesting place. But it's so. also, though, a little bit like the Napster situation. Like, yeah. maybe we didn't want this, but we're there. There's yeah. no putting it back in the box. Mm-mm. So how do we— navigate it. And one of the things I believe is true is that there's been this sort of unspoken decision that the people who are like social influencers in social media mm-hmm. have to be non-experts. Why? Why isn't there— That's interesting. Why don't we have credible, serious journalists yeah. crushing it on social media? Why don't we have like the most informed doctors and medical experts? Like I think there's a space for that. I think the audience wants it. Absolutely. We just don't have the structure yet for like— monetizing it, making it a business, like figuring out what that looks like. And the people who are already doing sort of productions on social media have decided that it should be kids doing the news or kids telling you what matters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a wrong – like it's not the only way. Yeah. It's part of it. But you're right. If I'm going to have major surgery, I don't want it to be figured out like Rotten Tomatoes. Right, some blogger. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. Well, here's what the experts say. But Rotten Tomatoes says (laughs) they should chop off your arm, Larry. So it's a 90%. A vote of the people. (laughs) No, I don't want Rotten Tomatoes figuring that out. That's our future. Uh I know. What is the future of Jessica Young? Are you going to give us some more novels? Are you going to, you going to dip back into this? You think? So, did you did you enjoy the process as a whole? It was such a uh-huh. it's like a soul excavation, uh-huh. really fun. Um, I want to make it into a TV show because there's ah, so many I more think stories that's great to idea, tell. By the way, yeah. um, I want the funny version, yeah. like the Veep of news. Yeah, uh, and I'm building this thing. I'm talking about this. Instagram news voice mm-hmm. into something larger, a business that involves more people and yeah. trying to do a little bit of what we've talked about. Yeah. Wasn't there – there was a radio host named Michael Savage. Didn't yes. you have a show called Savage Nation? Savage Nation. Yeah. yeah very did, different. Did you get any, like, blowback from that name? I or have the title? not. Yeah. I, I don't know not, if it's still on or – I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, he has a series of books. The reason I picked her last name was truly because of Jessica Savage. Yeah. And because she was such a singular sort of – leader, a first mm-hmm. woman in news, yeah. and yet she led this tragic life, and uh-huh. it did not go well, and people are always holding her up as the model of what female success in the news business looks like, right. and we need a different model. We need something different. Yeah. And so I'm kind of trying to call that out. Plus, it'd be a little savage. Yeah. You know, it's a little, it can be rough. Oh, well, great. Well, savage news, you guys. Go pick it up. Uh, it's got a shout-out from Amy Schumer. I know. Right she's the, awesome. That's, that's she hilarious. She announced her pregnancy on my Instagram feed. That's hilarious. So, yeah. Can I ask people to follow me at Jessica Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N? You heard it right there. And is that where they can—where do they get uh, your news? It's at Jessica Yellen, okay. and you go into the stories, and I do a video broadcast, Great. and I do explainers in the gallery. And I'm starting to post on YouTube this week, too. That's so great. news, and, not noise on YouTube. And how often do you check in on that? I do it. Um, I post once a day okay. on the weekdays, and then I answer DMs all the time. People ask me questions about, like, what does this mean in Congress? Right. There you go, guys. You will not get enough. Just, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Check it out. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Larry, for having And good luck great. with the book. Thank yeah. you. All right. All right.